And hello and welcome. My name is Fran Stoddard. The Orton Family Foundation is pleased to offer this event on transformational philanthropy from the perspective of foundations focused on positive impact in communities. Increasingly, philanthropic organizations are thinking more broadly about how to support systemic change in com local communities. On this call, you'll hear how and why three foundations are investing in long-term transformation using community heart and soul, the Orton Family Foundation's community development model that builds stronger, healthier, and more economically vibrant small cities and towns. More fundamental than just how to get grant money, our guests will offer you an insider's view of what is important to forward-thinking foundations. Joining us today are Brad Ward. He is the Director of Community Philanthropy at the Council on Foundations. He is in Indiana, and of course the foundation um, is located in D.C. We are thrilled to have you with us, Brad. Welcome. Thank you, Fran. Glad to be here. All right. Gabrielle Rate-Smith is a Senior Associate for Strategic Partnerships at the Orton Family Foundation in Vermont. Welcome, Gabrielle. Thank you, Fran. Hi, everyone. And Kathy Kruchoff is the president of the Finley Hancock Community Foundation in Ohio. Hi, Kathy. Hello from Ohio. Thank you. Nancy Van Milligan is president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque in Iowa. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you, Fran, and hello, everyone. And Susan Deveni is the executive director of the J. Marion Sims Foundation in South Carolina. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Fran, and good afternoon, everyone. This is a terrific panel, and but before we get to our guest stories, I'd like to just cover a few logistics. Each speaker will offer brief presentations before we go to your questions. Some have questions have already been sent in, and we'll watch for new questions for our guests on the Google document. We have over 250 registrants for our call today from across North America, so we'll be muting our listeners to get as clean an audio signal as possible. In your email is a link to our Google document for note-taking, comments, and questions. Orton's Caitlin Davison will be taking notes, and she'll proofread and refine those after the call, providing a great resource for you in the future. You can add your own comments or questions to the document in real time in the edit mode. However, the edit mode in Google Docs is limited to 50 contributors at a time, so if you're not active in the document, please return to the view-only mode to allow others to contribute. We will also leave this document up after the call for you and our guests to continue to add input and references. You can also tweet us your question or follow along with our live Twitter feed at, of course, the at sign Orton Foundation. In a few days, we will send links to the call notes and the recording to all registrants. If you're having any trouble with Google Docs during the call, try the refresh icon. And if you're having technical issues, you can email Caitlin Davison at cdavison at orton.org, and she will do her best to help out. Thanks so much. So now, on to our guests. We are delighted to welcome Brad Ward, Director of Community Philanthropy at the Council on Foundations, and as it happens, a brand new father. Congratulations, Brad. Brad interacts you. with you, bet. Brad, we're so glad you're with us. Brad interacts with hundreds of community foundations in the U.S. and colleagues across North America, as well as direct interaction with the National Standards for U.S. Community Foundations, a supporting organization of the Council. 
Previously, Brad served at two community foundations that he led to a successful merger and a doubling of total assets in just three years. Brad's specialty is engaging a variety of constituents in community philanthropy and navigating an innovative new era of community leadership and philanthropic engagement for the field. Brad will set the stage for a new path for foundations. Welcome, Brad, and go ahead. Thanks, Fran. Uh, so I, I remember correctly, you said I had three hours. Is that is that right? Or, <laughs> no, no, three minutes. Okay, three so minutes. so yeah, let's see what we can do. Here. Yeah, but I you know I really appreciate being part of this conversation. You've got an awesome cast, so I don't want to take any uh, time away from them. And I just want to remind people that the times that we're in, you know, foundations, not just community foundations, which is clearly my specialty, but they're exercising remarkable leadership you know, towards a common vision in communities because the notion of investing in resilient families and vibrant communities couldn't be more critical. And, and so for that reason, we're seeing this notion of social impact become a real priority for foundations. And it just makes sense that community foundations would be that hub where you see some of this work happening. They're becoming more and more anchor institutions, and, and they're well-positioned to do so, uh, if you think about the, the various networks and inter, inter, inter intricacies that they have, I, I want to be clear that you know I view community development almost as a disruption to the way community foundations were doing business. But I think it's in a good way. In my mind, community development is a structural and a strategic approach to engaging in in this work that can easily be aligned with the grant making and the endowment building. And I think there are some trends that are emerging that are forcing this reality, and so I think this is a very timely call. And I think the first you know, trend that I want to comment on is the notion of the role that's changing for community foundations, their role in society. You know, there's much more emphasis on placemaking. And, and while that's not new, the, the emphasis is, it has increased and the need for it has certainly been validated with the changing landscape. So I think that this is going to be something, you know, in the, in the past, you know, donors, you know, left us their legacy gifts and they were um, usually unrestricted or very clearly restricted. Today we're living with donors who want to witness their philanthropy at work. They want to be involved where the money is. Um, you know, just in the past 20 years, the, the, the focus on collaboration with not just donors but other institutions has really taken off. And, and so I think this new emerging uh, change, this new role, is where deeper engagement is really going to play out. The second role that comes to mind is this notion of civic dialogue and community engagement. I don't think we have to look very far to say we really got to get back to being able to converse and dialogue and engage with different perspectives in this country. And, and I think this role is going to be pretty critical, and that's where community development is going to be that strategic lens for community foundations. The last trend that I see that I think is going to continue to force the, 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 and reconcile with, with community development is the, the change in the flow of giving. Uh, the, the community development, it, it's that ground, grounding force to bring in new donors, to engage you know, millennials in local giving and you know, non-traditional donors and you know, co corporate leaders or high-wealth you know, high net donors or the next generation inheritors. I think that this change that's occurring, you know, both by demand of the donors and the competition in the marketplace is forcing community development to the table. There's more options than ever for giving. You look at online sites like GoFundMe and, you know, uh, specific movements like MoveOn.org, 
it's just it's reality, and I think that the community foundations as well as foundations in, in general are well positioned if they're if they're taking a look at this community development. So I'll leave it at that. Okay, terrific. Thank you so much, Brad, and thank you for being so brief with so much great information. Gabrielle Rate-Smith is a Senior Associate for Strategic Partnerships at the Orton Family Foundation who helps funders design programs that use the heart and soul model to bring about positive change in small cities and towns. Gabrielle is also a founding member of Community Heart and Soul in Essex, Vermont. She'll briefly help us understand what Community Heart and Soul is and how it's a good fit for transformational philanthropy. Gabrielle. Thanks, Fran, and thanks, Brad. So as Brad talked about, foundations are looking to have this greater social impact, and community development is one way that they're doing this. As the trends he described continue to emerge and evolve, we here at Orton are seeing a growing number of funders who are seeking out those tools and proven best practices that can support them in navigating the shift. So you're going to hear in a few minutes from our guest speaker in more guest speakers in more detail. This is where community heart and soul comes in. Heart and soul is a model for resident engagement and community and economic development that becomes uh, a positive disruption to echo Brad from the status quo. Heart and soul is a resident-driven community development model that involves everyone who lives and works in a town or small city in planning for their future. And the process successfully guides engagement for everyone, emphasizing reaching and hearing from missing voices. To heart and soul, communities identify what matters most to everyone who lives and plays and works there. Residents then determine and agree on the actions and ideas for funding that will most benefit them and the future of their community. So you can see the link there between what foundations are seeking and what communities have to offer through the process of going through that heart and soul um, model. And like many people and communities, foundations are often set in their ways, and this change and disruption that Brad was talking about can be challenges that are difficult to respond to successfully. As Heart and Soul engages residents in leading their own communities to a stronger future while strengthening their civic bonds and capacity to change, foundations can be an anchor organization for that change. And by serving their communities in this way, what we're learning is foundations are experiencing positive changes themselves that make them stronger partners of transformation in communities. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Gabrielle, for setting that up. Next up, Kathy Khrushchev is the president of the Finley-Hancock County Community Foundation in Ohio. Under Kathy's leadership, the Community Foundation launched successful initiatives to strengthen the local nonprofit community's board and staff leadership, as well as a unique partnership with the Orton Family Foundation to bring community heart and soul to Western Ohio to support the ongoing economic and social viability of small towns. Thank you for joining us from Ohio, Kathy. Go ahead. Well, thank you, Fran, and thank you for having me on this call today. I um, organized my thoughts around some questions that I'm often asked and some questions that I receive from board members when we were first thinking about heart and soul. And the first question I often get is, well, why were you interested in heart and soul in the first place? And for us as a community foundation, we had early on embraced and, um, and wanted to develop our understanding of the idea of, of community leadership and the role of community foundations in community leadership. 
So we saw heart and soul as a way to extend that um, further into the community that we serve. We were also looking for an effective strategy to engage with rural communities. Most community foundations um, are project-oriented, and we are also very much agency-oriented. That's our historical funding model. And so we found ourselves at a loss when we went out and looked at some of the very small towns, even in western Ohio, um, where those entities that we are most experienced in working with, they just don't exist. So we were trying to find a way to um, organize ourselves and bring people together so that we could respond to and be part of those those community change initiatives that were going on. We also had an awareness um, as of a what we would call perhaps a town and gown um, type of perception. Um, like many counties, um, as you get into the more rural parts of the country, you have a, a central city or the county seat, and then you have everyone else, those villages and, and uh, smaller towns that usually make a ring around the county. Um, and the foundation was viewed uh, primarily as for Finley, for the county seat, but not really for the rest of the county or the, or the villages and smaller towns. So we wanted to try to break through that perception and and show real commitment to our entire community, not just the people who happen to live in town. We came upon Heart and Soul um, through um, participating in another process uh, with the Funders Network, and we were really impressed with what the model had to offer. Um, for us, it ticked all the boxes of our mission statement. Our mission statement says that we're going to be involved in collaborative leadership, that we want to be engaged in responsible grant making, and we want to develop philanthropic giving. The processes of heart and soul are absolutely about that. The connection to philanthropic giving may not seem obvious um, at the beginning, but what we found was that it does, in fact, encourage philanthropic giving. It creates opportunities for people to step forward and give, it creates deeper understanding of the needs of the community and ways that people can support that community. So we saw that it was very much in alignment with our mission. One of the uh, interesting questions I get is why would a community foundation um, consider getting into a partnership like this? What, what are some of the things that you might want to consider if you're thinking about um, moving into this sort of service uh, model. The most important question is, does it fit your mission and vision? Um, you, it's so often we tell people, you know, you don't want to have the tail wag the dog, and this is absolutely a case of that. This is 100% mission-driven. It is part of our commitment to serve our, our entire community. Another key consideration is patience. Does your board and do you and does your staff have the patience and the resources to get into a long-haul commitment? And by long-haul, I mean a minimum of three to five years of support and engagement with the community. We chose to staff up for this. We made an con internal commitment to fund a, a staff position, and we looked at that as an ongoing um, position that we as a foundation would need to support 
in addition to other financial resources that we were going to have to bring to the picture to support the, pro the project itself um, going on in the community. I think another thing that um, is really important is if you or your board can tolerate fuzzy outcomes. Um, heart and soul is it's a philosophy, it's an approach, it's a strategy, and very good things come as outcomes um, from it. But at the beginning, in particular, they're kind of hard to see. It's very fuzzy. And so as you, if you have a, um, a need for program evaluation, you definitely need to be thinking about that way on the front end um, and thinking about how will you evaluate whether or not this was a good investment for your foundation because it does take a while to come into focus. Um, and I think it's also very important that you just see that community leadership is a strategy that enhances your brand. Um, and we do. We think that community leadership is a vital part of our identity. It raises our visibility with our stakeholders, and it's very important to our donors. We've been involved for about two and a half years, and so far the outcomes that we've seen, um, in addition to some of the fuzzy ones, um, but we are seeing in the one community that has gone through the full cycle of heart and soul activity, that we have new leaders who are stepping forward, um, more people are interested in getting involved in the community's decision-making. More people are running for town councils and seats and those sorts of things. We see an increased level of community engagement by residents in various community activities. And then on our side, we see very much uh, more positive visibility for our community foundation with new groups of donors and stakeholders that we had not um, engaged with prior to Heart and Soul. And we see an interest in them. Um, they're wanting to have a, a relationship with the foundation as donors, as part of our leadership, or part of this ongoing um, development of heart and soul. So th those are some of the high-level um, things that we've seen and experienced, and I look forward to hearing from the rest of the panel. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kathy. Nancy Van Milligan is president and CEO of the Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque. Nancy has helped to grow the Foundation's charitable funds to more than $55 million and established it as a trailblazer in community leadership and engagement initiatives. Nancy is a past president of the Iowa Council on Foundations. The Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque is working with communities in western Iowa using the community heart and soul model. Thank you for sharing your story, Nancy. Go ahead. Sure, thanks. And I could just say... Ditto to everything Kathy said, because <laughs> Dubuque, like Finley, is a hub, and the values that she got from Heart and Soul I could echo, but I will tell our story and see if people can um, find value in, in the process. So the Community Foundation of Greater Dubuque, our mission is to strengthen communities and inspire giving, and our vision is equity and opportunity for all. We're a 14-year-old regional foundation, and actually we have $85 million in assets now, so we've grown since I last told Thornton how much we have. But our goal has been to be transformational rather than transactional. So we're a convener and a catalyst, and along the way we have really um, bought into community engagement as one of our primary tools. Um, we serve um, a rural area, Dubuque is the hub, and then we have seven county affiliates and two community affiliates. And the one thing we found is when we go into communities, there are certain communities that 
feel like, um, oh, my gosh, woe is me, and there's all these problems, but they're convinced a white knight in shining armor is going to come in and save the day. So, you know, like they're trying to get this major corporation to come into their industrial park or that big federal grant or, or maybe Google, we don't know. But um, our, our um, actual experience has been is our strong communities are the ones that take the time to engage their citizens and then plan for the future. So we have nine formal affiliate relationships. So that means we are the back office and we're the support for a um, leadership committee in that community or county. And then that group is engaged in the community and our grant makers. When we started using heart and soul in um, two of these communities, we found, number one, it immediately strengthens that board and it strengthens the grant processes because it engages the community, the, 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 the group of leaders in engaging their community, and hence they build relationships, community leadership, and community knowledge, and it just makes them much better grant makers. So instead of buying the football helmets or new lights for the baseball field, they are supporting um, sustainable solutions to community problems. They might move from funding a food pantry to funding um, starting a farmer's market or maybe addressing food waste at a grocery store or a local restaurant and feeding the homeless. So real, solid, sustainable grant-making that only comes from building relationships and building knowledge about the real needs of the community. Um, another advantage for us has been the realization that when citizens are engaged and involved, they feel ownership and they like to be involved and they're more likely to donate their time and their resources. And like Kathy said, when you look at heart and soul um, at first glance, you don't see the philanthropy um, at the front end, but if you start sharing that message of transfer of wealth and you start sharing that building relationships with everyone in their community and people are part of that process, they get more engaged, they feel empowered, and then you see the um, volunteerism rising and also the philanthropic giving. Um, I think the one thing for us with Heart and Soul that it does, so at the end of the day, it builds trust all around. Um, I think the communities we serve see us more as partners in their success. And just like Kathy talked about with Findlay being the hub and Dubuque being the hub, we needed to really overcome that kind of big dog um, perception and really be seen as an equal partner and, and there to be part of the growth and, and, and part of the learning. I think also citizens become more trusting of their leaders and neighbors and they know their neighbors. And one thing we found out through doing this work is most people want to engage all, you know, the um, heart and soul model encourage you, encourages you to involve everyone. But we found that sometimes um, groups might not know how to engage neighbors that are different than them. In one of our communities, there was a large Hispanic population, and the leaders were um, very cognizant of the fact that they really didn't know those people or what their value was, you know, those people. And to help build their skill set and how do you reach out to newcomers? How do you reach out to people who may have a different language than you? How do you help them be part of your community um, has just, um, uh, I, I, I almost 
um, can't even explain the emotion I feel about what I've watched happen in those communities and the relationships that evolved and um, the better, strong community work that's being done because of it. Um, so all in all, we use heart and soul as core to our mission. Um, we sometimes um, can't even imagine the fact that we did not used to be engaged with it and have found that it actually impacts how we operate as a staff, how we relate to our board, and the skills and the tools that we have as we build leaders in our other communities. So thank you. Okay, thank you, Nancy, very much for um, giving us that terrific perspective. Susan uh, Deveni is Executive Director of the J. Marion Sims Foundation. Susan leads the foundation's ongoing commitment to lift up and empower community voices to support a healthy community. Susan brings over 30 years of experience in the private, public, and nonprofit sector, most recently serving as Director of the state's Early Childhood Agency. She has served on numerous national, state, and local boards, including for the National Association for the Education of Young Children, the Waterford Institute, the Southeastern Council on Foundations, the Winthrop University's Graduate School, and South Carolina ETV. Thank you, Susan, for bringing your perspective from a Health Legacy Foundation and as a fairly um, uh, new foundation to Community Heart and Soul. Go ahead, Susan. Thank you, Fran, and thanks to my colleagues. What an honor to be with you today. I'm sitting in a lovely 70-degree weather um, here in <laughs> South Carolina, and I am the newest member probably on the panel as a partner to Heart and Soul so let me tell you a bit about our journey. We are a health legacy private foundation, about 22 years old. Our post-textile community is roughly 93,000 citizens living in very small cities and towns in an area of the country that is also uh, still discovering stories about its history and struggling a bit with how to have those conversations lead them forward. So since I have been here as a member of the foundation team, our board has been asking questions about how do we do a deeper dive to something that Nancy and Kathy have both spoken about involving our community. How do we ask the right kinds of questions that allow our community to feel as though they have ownership not only in the community's current uh, path and journey forward, but also ownership in the sorts of things we focus on here at the foundation. We are about the eighth in size of South Carolina philanthropies. And I would say to you that we, as a place-based health legacy foundation, very much share the spirit of the community foundations that are on the panel today. We were looking for a way to join sectors and to increase participation. We see a lack of participation in the public process here. We often see a lack of hope, and it's a big concern when we believe the assets that make the community strong are actually every individual who lives, plays, works, or learns here. So we were looking around the country at the different models available to us to really incentivize community involvement and community engagement. Last summer we began a process 
largely driven through our nonprofit partners and our citizens here in the center of the county to ask the question, what do you love about this town? We think it's really important to frame questions positively, and I'd say that's a real strength of this model. Uh, living in South Carolina and coming out of the education sector most recently, we used to hear things about, thank goodness for, you know, X and Y state because we were 48th instead of 50th. It's not something that you can rally around often. Uh, the negative space is not something that generates a lot of hope and pride. So we started asking the question of our residents here, what brings you hope and what excites you about living here? What we heard from 1,400 people ages 16 to likely 90 were things like, we love the fact that my family's been here for generations. We like the small town feel. There were seeds of hope coming out of our first series of conversations in this region of the country. And then we came upon this model that married community development, economic development, with this participation that's so incredible. So as a strategic way to transform our own work from what I would call fairly traditional grant making, very tactical, I think to use Nancy's term, and, and to look broader and at a longer term vision of how do we bring all residents together, bring the public and private sector to the table to have the same conversation we're all having in philanthropy, what better way than telling stories? So it's really an honor for us to be a part of this national movement. I would say, and this is really, I think, where Brad had us focused at the beginning of the call, we in this country really need to be bound together um, going back to our core values of resiliency and what makes communities strong, and that's talking to your neighbor. And I think if we can do anything through this process, and we're early in the game here, uh, it would be to remind us that having conversations and including all members of a community in that conversation will be the actual journey that we desire to bring our communities forward. So we're excited to be a part of the process. Our board is thrilled about this being an anchor part of our work for the next three to eight years. And we're learning as quickly as we can, both from the residents here and certainly from our partners across the country. Fantastic, Susan. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you to all of our guests who are doing extraordinary work um, in, in small towns and in their regions and beyond. So on to your questions. We um, have a number of questions that have already come in, and um, so all of our guests were fabulously on time, so we'll try to get to as many of these as possible. So uh, one comes in from uh, Pennsylvania asking if foundations are looking for a physical community development plan to work alongside other initiatives that lift up community values. Now, I hope we've got this right, um, Pennsylvania, but it sounds like, you know, there's a, there's a, there are community development plans that are about physical things, about transportation and sidewalks and other things. Um, are foundations looking for those kinds of plans alongside something like Heart and Soul? This is, this call can be, um, about other initiatives as well, but that lift up community values. And Kathy, I'm just going to choose you to, to see about an answer for this because you're closest to Pennsylvania there in Ohio. Um, so, 
Kathy, would you say most foundations would also want a plan, um, kind of one of those physical, you know, community development plan with um, something else that uplifts values? That's a really interesting question. Um, the communities that we are, we've worked with did not have a, um, a, a community development plan. They might have had, well, I take that back. There, our county does provide master planning for all the townships and villages. So there would have been in some sort of master plan, and each of the communities has its wish list of improvements for sidewalks and, and those sorts of things. Uh, but as you can tell, I mean, it clearly wasn't something that we were looking for. And I think it actually does speak to one of the, the parts of the heart and soul model that I think people have the hardest time getting the concept of is that this isn't about providing money to build something. Um, it's about providing resources for a community to go through a process to identify what's important to its residents and then to use those statements to guide their future decision-making about such things such as a physical improvement or change in their community. So, um, you know, we struggled against this idea um, quite a bit um, at the beginning because um, there was this idea that the community foundation was going to come in and build something, and we kept explaining, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, right. So, and maybe Nancy, right. yeah. go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, this is Brad. You know, I, I took the, the statement about community values as probably more along the lines of maybe what Susan talked about in South Carolina and thinking about civil uh, civil discourse and civil conversation, hmm. respect mm -hmm. for other people's differences. Uh, that that's how I took the word community values, and so so I think in that terminology. I think absolutely the, the community development framework, it is, it is a working plan to create dialogue, create opportunities to link. And this is more true maybe for diasporia populations um, or where you see large migrants or immigrant populations swelling um, or just very different, you know, populations starting to gel. Um, that's how I took it, and, and I just wanted to add that into the context. And, and, and again, if people um, have some ideas, you can add uh, some answers, um, or, or maybe this person from, from Pennsylvania can even clarify the question. Uh, you can add to this, and, and all of us, the wisdom of, of this crowd that's listening, can uplift all of us. So um, you might want to take, take a look at that question and, and, and give comment there. I'd like to move on um, uh, to a question for, um, I'm going to deliver to Nancy about how do you most efficiently raise money for a citizen-led initiative, and how do you combat naysayers in the community who really aren't interested in change? This is from Rebecca in uh, California. So this, um, how do you raise money for citizen-led initiatives and combat those naysayers? Go ahead, Nancy. Sure, I love that question, actually. So when we go into a community and we do heart and soul, so you begin to bring people together around sharing their values and telling stories. And towards the end, they are able as a community to come up with some ideas or projects that they really want to take on. And um, what we start with at the front end is to make sure that we talk about philanthropy and the value of philanthropy. And our state, which I know many states have done, has done a transfer of wealth study. 
And we can extrapolate that down to the community level. And we share with folks there that there is charitable dollars out there in their community and that that philanthropy can really move the needle on community projects. And then as you go through the process and you're use, you know, using citizen input to drive this path, as I think I mentioned before, people when they're involved in, in, in uh, over, uh, under, um, bringing out the solutions, they get ownership and buy-in and then are most willing to volunteer and to be charitable. And we've just found that it, it's hand in hand and that it's actually um, the most effective way to raise dollars for community projects is have citizen involvement throughout and, and to have that ownership. Fantastic. Thanks, Nancy. Uh, the next question is about you know, how many smaller well-sourced placements can have potentially wider impact and chances of success than, than fewer, maybe bigger um, uh, amounts of money. It's a question from Robin uh, from Florida. Susan, I'm just going to come to you uh, in case you have some thoughts about that. So um, having, you know, smaller uh, grants to small towns for very specific things, can that have a wider impact um, and chances of success than fewer, bigger uh, grants? Yeah, so great question. I think my response would begin with, from our frame, it's not always about the money at all. It really is about the process and the chance to be involved. So like my partners on this call, in many cases, our foundation is looking to move into a space that takes us out of the check writing and, and much more into a space of community collaboration. And so I don't always think the money makes the difference. Instead, it's mm -hmm. really about inviting people to become involved, to see that they have a seat at the table, take the table to them, be certain that folks are feeling that they have efficacy in driving their own future. I think money is really an afterthought. Um, I believe very wholeheartedly in um, sort of sparking innovations with small grants, and I think that'd be the other way I would answer that question, and I expect that heart and soul through this two-year process as, as we look ahead, the two towns that we've just selected as heart and soul recipients, they are not getting funds to build a park or pave a road. They are receiving this, this funding from our foundation to support this work of getting people around a table to have conversations with one another so that everyone sees together what might be the bright future that we all desire together. So I often don't Terrific. think it's even about the money at all. <laughs> Great, Susan. Thank you so much. You know, and actually this, uh, there's a question from uh, Idaho from Cynthia about libraries and their role. She's new to a community, and I just want to answer that quickly so we can move on to other questions um, from about foundations. Libraries are often that place where people do gather and come together and have these conversations. And there's um, any of the towns that I've um, known, the library plays a key role in being a place where people can come together. So I think people can answer more, maybe have, offer examples for Cynthia about libraries in your town. But I'm going to move on to kind of benchmarks and measurables. I'm going to go back to um, Kathy about uh, 
you know, how do we look at, um, this is a question um, from Pennsylvania, what are some benchmarks an organization can use to determine when work impacts the community as a whole rather than individuals? And also from Michigan, Gilbert and Michigan, you know, what are some of the measurables uh, you are look, looking for in funding, um, a placemaking or other project? So what are some of those measurables and benchmarks that you are looking for, uh, Kathy? Which probably leads into how evaluators can help foundations. Uh, go ahead, Kathy, sorry. Um, sure. I think that um, for us, we weren't quite sure what was going to happen <laughs> And um, so we um, you know, we had some ideas. We had talked with you know, a number of communities that had completed the heart and soul process, and they talked about you know an increasing vitality, increasing engagement, increasing um, activity uh, across the the entire community. And I think that those are the the, the types of, of benchmarks or indicators that you might want to set up on the front end. And some of these things are really easy to figure out. You can go back and look and see how many people ran for the latest, the last three or four or five town council elections. Often in our community, people run unopposed. Um, and now we're seeing uh, since the heart and soul process uh, was completed, that there's actually um, a little bit of competition now for some of these town council um, positions. That, to me, is a really important indicator of higher engagement. Um, we also looked at things, um, and we were one of the things that Heart and Soul does very well and really holds the community's feet to the fire is this idea of a community network analysis. And this is a very intentional process at, that was alluded to earlier of unheard um, voices. The heart and soul folks use the word everyone and that everyone gets involved. When they say everyone, they really mean everyone. And so looking at the composition of the groups that were coming together and where the data was coming from, I think that's another indicator that it's not the same typical group of people, but there are people who may not be English speaking. There are people who may have um, these different age groups, people, um, young people, children, school groups. Um, so again, that, that's one of the indicators that you, that we're looking for was the breadth of engagement in the process. And there is a very strong data element that, that goes into the heart and soul model. Um, and I think, you know, the, the benefit to individual community members, well, of course, you know, that's always so a fear that, you know, that if, Harry has a you know a, a piece of property for sale, and the folks decide that you know they'd really like to see that piece of property used for some particular reason. You know, and I think you can get yourself really worked up into um, uh, a lot of uh, unnecessary excitement about that. I mean, the 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 kinds of things that Heart and Soul is working on. Are, are very different. They are, by their nature, very broad-based. They're very much, they are the community's values. They are not any one person's values. And they represent and reflect the community, not any one particular person. And, and again, the process is very intentional about how that is um, derived and so that the folks who are working on the project can say with a lot of confidence, this is really what people here think. 
Um, and it's not just the, the six or eight people who might have been doing the data gathering or leading the process. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this, I'm, I'm going to go to Nancy about just some, there are a couple of questions. One, Nancy from Kansas wants to know systemic um, approaches to make sure citizens know they have the opportunity to contribute to each project or cause. And also, Stacy from Colorado is, you know, important things to remember when trying to implement grassroots movement toward collaboration. So talking about how do you make sure that citizens are really contributing and that there is real collaboration going on, um, which may or, again, may or may not be able to be measured by numbers about how many people contribute, et cetera. But, Nancy, go ahead on that whole, um, how do you make sure citizens are, have those opportunities and uh, to collaborate and contribute? Sure, great question. I'll, I'll start with how do you make sure people are going to contribute. And, and of course, um, effective use of communication tools is essential. But I think there's a couple of principles that make that um, come true, and that's one is how many times have you had people say to you, well, I was never asked. Nobody ever asked me to contribute or to give or to be part of this. So keep that frame in mind at all times and make sure your communications are actually inviting people in and asking them to participate. And the the community engagement um, process itself does so much of that work. Another thing that w- that's good to remember is it doesn't always have to be you and or the leadership that's asking for people to contribute. In fact, um, the people that are part of the process, the volunteers, the citizens, if you empower them, um, I almost think of them as rabid ambassadors, and you give them the tools. One great book, they call it a 59-minute book, it's written by Jerry Panis, a fundraising consultant, and it's Uh, The name of the book is Asking. It taught me such a wonderful thing years ago is that when you ask people to give, you are not asking for money or you're not asking for their time. You are giving them an opportunity to make a difference. And if someone is philanthropic and they care about a cause and you ask them to contribute, you're giving them an opportunity to do what they actually want to do. And I think to have volunteers understand that and feel comfortable with giving is a great way to um, make sure that everyone's invited because you have more boots on the ground and it can be from someone that they respect and trust and it can be so much more effective. Hmm. Um, Fantastic. Yeah, the the second half of that was um, how to make sure people, how... The whole um, grassroots movement towards collaboration. From Colorado. Right. I think it's still that same, those same principles of meet people mm-hmm. where they're at, make sure they're invited, make sure they feel welcome, um, understand cultural differences, um, and be aware of how to um, make people feel like you really want them there and they're welcome and that they have a voice. So it's, it's just good best practice of how do you engage communities. Great. And and actually, this also, there are two questions, one from Colorado, one from California about buy-in. And maybe you've really answered that, Nancy, but I'm, I'm going to give Susan a, a chance also to just weigh in on this about what you're really looking at about getting community buy-in, what, what you're working on now to get everybody on board. 
So I think Nancy addressed a lot of the ways that I would respond, but I'll, I'll take a tack on the youth side. We have in our community a significant focus and here at the foundation on younger individuals. We want to pay attention to our next generation or we won't have a town, frankly. So we are really anticipating some creative opportunities to invite young adults and students into this conversation. And we have actually found ourselves already blown away by the kind of involvement that our young people have brought to the process. In one of our communities, as a matter of fact, the younger part of the team did the community network analysis themselves. And they came to the table, I think, I'll be honest, they were going to get extra credit for their class at the beginning of this process because their professor thought it was such a cool opportunity for them. Well, they never left the table. And we see a lot of energy and a lot of value in really being still as older people ourselves and listening to these younger voices because it's really, for us, the chance to have that demographics start driving decisions. So I, I really get excited about what I expect we're going to see from our younger people. Fantastic. Thank you. And I'm going to return to uh, Kathy for a quick, what are the top things you want to accomplish with your money, asked Trish from Vermont. So what are those key things that you want to make sure your money accomplishes as a foundation? I think one of the in in the context of heart and soul, I think what we want to see is um, that we can come back in, in two, three, four, five years and see that the community has um, inculcated, for lack of a, a better word, the, the processes and the values around heart and soul. So is the community making decisions and have, are they learning and are they using the skills that they learn through heart and soul to make sure that everyone's voice is heard? Are they using the heart and soul uh, values to drive um, and guide their decision-making process? Are, are there, have those um, value statements been um, baked into their land use? For example, if the value statement is that we value uh, families and family activity and um, outside um, outdoor recreation, then um, does their uh, community planning uh, reflect that, or are they making decisions that are at odds with that value statement? So th that's the point of view that we're taking in terms of was this worth it. Great. Um, I'm going to ask Brad this question. Uh, Owen from North Carolina is interested in where else could we find others interested in transformational philanthropy? Are there some resources that you would recommend for people interested in in, in what you see as the, the new wave? Yeah, obviously I'm, I'm a huge fan of what Orton has invested in and, and sort of the true, tried, and tested models that are, are our panelists, you know, shared with today, and so I would probably even throw that question back to them. But but for me personally, um, I've been pleased with what the Knight Foundation has has been invested in around on the table. Um, this is a concept that I think uh, lends itself nicely to this 
broader work that we're talking about today. And the On the Table was, was well done by community foundations across the country, um, Chicago Community Trust, uh, Bluegrass down in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, and, and there's Miami Foundation and, and numerous other ones that I, I can't even try to, to say them all. But uh, I, I think that On the Table is a good, effective model. Um, community foundations also have CF Leads, which, which has its own sort of cohorts um, that people invest in, and they pay to play in that space to, to try to learn from one another. Um, the, the last one that I can specifically think of, um, and I'm trying to recall where it originated, but Greater Buffalo, the, the community foundation up in Greater Buffalo, mm -hmm. has really invested heavily at being at the table um, in a leadership role on, a, I think, five or six priority issues. And their work, I, it, it came from sort of a framework that, that I'm just escaping me at the moment. But uh, those would be some that I might call on. Great. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, we have uh, Kevin from Vermont has written in uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, and, and Susan, since you are the newest and you've been very involved and you've just selected some communities, I think I'm going to address this to you. How do you determine community readiness to participate in Heart and Soul? How are communities selected? So a brief overview of how that works. Sure. What a great question. I am happy to take a stab. I am actually learning myself, but I'll describe how mm -hmm. we just came through the process. We actually hosted a couple of workshops during the year. The Orton team came to the southeastern United States, and we basically teased this um, workshop by putting cards out in local grocery stores and the libraries, and that's a great question on library involvement, and folks only knew if you wanted to come and hear more about how to get involved in discovering heart and soul, please come to this workshop. We had over 250 people from around our community show up, and so that told us right away there was a lot of interest. So it took us uh, a little bit by surprise, but it also confirmed that people were really ready to engage in something that was positive around why they loved where they live. I'll say the selection of communities to go from 250 folks scattered all across the footprint we serve to selecting these two towns was quite a process. Very deliberate. Uh, we actually opened up a second workshop and had a number of webinars for people to really discern, you know, is this really for me? This sounds like a lot of work. It's not a project. It's a process. So we, we really were a, I'd say the, um, you know, Brad's notion of becoming a learning cohort that's a little bit of how we are intending to approach this, though the two towns that were selected are on fire with the model. We also believe that the rest of the community needs to take notice and needs to be trained up on this methodology of how do you pay attention to, uh, to what people are expressing as what matters most to them. So we're developing a learning cohort around the two communities that were selected where we can all learn together and be doing our own philanthropy better. The readiness piece, um, communities have to be really reflective about the model of not having any agenda and really being a, a blank canvas. We've used that as our um, sort of visual. We want to see communities who embrace this model with open arms by just offering a canvas and having everybody come to the table to write on that canvas. So those that rose to the top for us were the communities who did that 
extremely well and who are ready to go. I think we will continue to face um, the question of what are those actions when what we're really funding is the process of involvement. So we can't wait to see the results of both the communities that were selected and also mm -hmm. this larger community engagement a core of individuals who are, are listening and learning together. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Susan. Uh, Nancy and Kathy might have something to add, but we're almost out of time. So we're, I'm almost up to my last question, but um, you've been at this a little longer. I think Susan covered it pretty well, but Kathy or Nancy want to add something? Fran, this is Nancy, and the only thing I would say is our first community we selected um, and I think they would and we would say it, it's so much better if the community really comes on, on their terms and they, they're the ones that are asking to do it and not you asking them to do it with you. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So it's really yeah. coming from um, Yeah. So it was, it was a, a good lesson. It all ended well, but we do think from, you know, this point mm -hmm. forward, we make sure the community is all in and it's their idea and they're moving forward, and then we we go alongside them and support their work. And and I'm sitting here nodding my head because um, we used the, uh, an invitation process, and we invited um, the towns, all the towns in our in our service area, um, to come to an informational meeting. Um, and if it was a village or an unincorporated area, maybe they had a community improvement group or a neighborhood improvement group that had formed, uh, we, we searched them out high and low and invited them uh, to come hear about it, invited them to um, apply to uh, be sort of on our short list. We had a much smaller uh, universe of, of uh, communities that we were talking with. And then um, we uh, went out and did site visits and asked those communities to tell us why they should be selected. And uh, it was a it was a good process for them and for us. And um, even the communities that were not selected to be part of Heart and Soul, we have been very intentional about continuing to stay in touch with them um, because we'll probably do this again. And uh, just because they weren't ready this time doesn't mean that they can't be more ready in a couple of years when we're ready to, to roll out another community. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Uh, thank you all for answering that question. So my final question, you know, we, we, we know that it probably takes a lot of work to move uh, on an organizational level uh, to become more transformational, to get buy-in from your board members, much less your community. So the last question that I want each of you to, just to tackle briefly, what first steps would you recommend that a foundation can take to start moving the needle from transactional to transformational philanthropy? Um, and in the order we started with today, I'll start with Kathy again. I would say slow down. Uh, we are in the relationship business. We're not in the in the transaction business. And relationships take time, and they take mutuality, and they take trust. And um, we can't um, you can't put a um, a number up and say by the end of the year we're going to have created this many more uh, relationships. Uh, it doesn't work that way. It's, a, it's very organic. It's very uh, surprising sometimes. And um, it's, it's, it's a philosophy. It's an attitude. Um, and it's a strategy. 
that you, that you have to be willing to invest in over a very long period of time. Great, Kathy. Thank you. And Nancy, your um, your advice for first steps for a foundation. Yeah. So I again, Kathy, hate to say ditto, but it really is about relationships and trust. And you know, they say change happens at the speed of trust. I want to echo. I I think I can't remember who said it earlier, but. Our grant making is one of the tools in our toolbox, but it is not the most important one by any means, um, and really use that to support good work and to move things forward um, and not just to be the funder. We're typically the partner, and it's with um, um, people that we've built relationships with and organizations that have built relationships with their um, constituency or clients are um, the ones that we find have help us be transformational because of their good work. So, again, people, relationships, trust, take the time to make all that happen. Thank you. And, Susan, your tip. Yeah, I think I would do the ditto thing, too. I think I'd add the word courage uh, as, a, as a foundation that's two decades old heading into our third decade. You know, for our board to slow down and to be less about writing a check and more about cultivating trust and civility was a little fuzzy, but it really, as we had the conversation around the board table, it's really where we need to be focused, bringing everybody to the table, public and private, and really at the very core, every resident is, is really a value system. So I'd say examine your own value system. Don't, don't go here unless it really matches with what you're about, and, uh, and then go with your heart and, and and link arms and be courageous about it, but but cultivate <laughs> and slow down uh, is a is a good mantra. Great, Susan, and and Brad, I, I hope you're still with us. If you want a last word um, to foundations, what might that yeah, be? For yeah, for community foundations specifically, to to echo the, the comments, the question that I think needs to be asked of your board is. How, what's our comfort level for us becoming stagnant? What's our comfort level for us even potentially declining in uh, our assets growth or, or our contribution levels? Because if you're focusing in on the relationships, you are diminishing to some degree the, the presence of true transactional uh, growth of assets and growth of giving. And so if they can stomach the notion that what happens if we went stagnant? Well, everyone knows the real answer is, is it's totally cool. It, there's nothing wrong with that. You're, you're still a community foundation. But there's been such a long emphasis on growth and asset growth in particular that we failed to look at the full toolbox, as I think Nancy might have said. Um, so I, I, that's a great question that you can ask your board to get them started comfortable with the notion that, okay, this is how this is what fuzziness really looks like. Um, it, it just is a, a deviation from transactional type growth that we're used to. Thank you so much. Thank you, all of our guests, for a, very, a really terrific call. Thank you, Brad Ward and Gabrielle Ratzik-Smith, for early, your early introductions and being with us through the call. Thank you both. And, thank you. All right. And thank you, Susan Devaney from uh, Lancaster, South Carolina. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks to Kathy Khrushchev from Northwestern Ohio. Thank you. And also from Greater Dubuque, Iowa, thanks to Nancy Van Milligan. Thanks. It was my pleasure. That was really terrific. Many thanks to all of you uh, who were part of this call and for all of you across the United States and beyond for joining us today. 
We hope that you'll also take a moment to fill out our brief survey to help us continue to improve our call series. Look for links on our survey under announcements. And we hope you take a look at the Google document and we didn't get to every single question. Um, please add your wisdom and thoughts to the questions that came in today uh, as you go over them. Uh, we got to almost all of them, but, but not quite all. Uh, we're going to uh, skip over the holidays and bring you a very special guest in the new year from the Annie E. Casey Foundation to talk about engaging missing voices and the value of local knowledge. So look for notices for that in January. I'd like to thank the Orton Family Foundation who make these sessions possible. Look for a recording of this call that will be sent out to all registrants and posted on our website, www.orton.org, in the next few days. For the Orton Family Foundation, I'm Fran Stoddard. Thanks to everybody, and have a good day. Bye-bye.